This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi, and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name's Martine, and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of the show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we'll talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help, and then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who's an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Hey, I'm Meg. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you're an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places, prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism and the alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is that it's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is a physical aspect of, of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. This makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, these same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who's just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. And we're just about to interview an AA member who is going to share their experience with alcoholism. So let's meet our guest. 
Hi, I wonder if you'd like to introduce yourself and just give us a quick sketch of who you are, maybe starting with your age and how long you've been sober. Hey, look, I'm Meg and I'm an alcoholic, surprisingly. Um, I'm 53. I've been sober for 21 years, so I'm a grown-up. I was just saying (laughs) that before. Sure are. And and are you working at the moment? Look, I do. We actually own an agricultural contracting business and I own two school bus rounds. So I'm busy right. doing that. Really? Cool. I am busy, not I busy. <laughs> um, and what about family? Are you married? Do you have children? Look, I'm married and to a member in the fellowship, which mm-hmm. is very cool. Um, we have five kids uh, they are all adults. They're my stepchildren. Yeah. And so then a variety of grandchildren, and one of them actually lives with me. So I actually have a 17-year-old granddaughter that I raise. Right. Cool. And where are you from and where did you grow up? Yeah, Originally, I'm from Australia. So I'm mm-hmm. from the Upper Murray, which is the start of the Murray River um, in the Snowy Mountains. And so I grew up there. And when I was 18, left school, went down to Melbourne. I lived in Melbourne for 18 years before I decided to move to New Zealand. Cool. Just before we get to New Zealand, how was your childhood? Look, I actually had a really happy childhood. Yeah. I I, I know that there can be, you know, some people might like to blame their childhood for their alcoholism. I can't. Yeah. You know, my parents were very loving, um, you know, sort of boring middle-class people doing boring middle-class things in rural Victoria. Right. Um, my dad died when I was 10, which was horrific yeah. because, you know, I was a daddy's girl and stuff. But, you know, life continued and it, w- it was a happy childhood. It was a happy, yeah. normal kid. I, I went off the rails all by myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about that and maybe about your first drink and how how your drinking progressed? Right. I I don't actually have that incredibly clear memory of the first, first drink. Right. What I remember is even before I was drinking, I was quite obsessed by the concept of alcohol. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I remember... I had to write an essay at school and I never used to do anything at school because, you know, I was one of those kids. But I became really interested in writing this one and I would have been about 13 and I had to describe what it would be like if I was on a deserted island. Yeah. So I'm describing all of this and I had a vineyard because I couldn't imagine, even at 13 and I hadn't started drinking, that you could be on a deserted island without alcohol because right. that's how I thought about life. So then... When I discovered drinking, it was glorious. Yeah. It was fun and it became my focus in life. Um, like, I, I, knew, I, I knew that I reacted differently to alcohol than my friends. Yeah. We would all go out on a Saturday night. We'd be 16. We'd all get drunk. That was rural Victorian life, yeah. by the way. Um. Well, until I was drinking the same as them, but I would spend all week living for the next Saturday night, whereas right. those guys just went to school and had fun and did what you normally do. So I knew that right from the get-go, I was obsessed by the idea of drinking. Right. It was the be-all and end-all of life, as far as I was concerned. It yeah. Was good. It wasn't good, by the way, but it was good. And, and when did you realise it was a problem, the way that you were drinking? I... Well, as I said, I, I, I had an awareness that my drinking was different. Yeah. Um, 
And when I'm, by the time I was like 21, if anybody mentioned my drinking, that was it. They were off the Christmas card list. Right. I did not talk to people about it because I, I knew that this wasn't right. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to stop, yeah. but I didn't want anybody to draw attention yeah. to the fact that I was out of control. Um, so that, yeah, I would, I would have been 20, 21 and I knew, and, you know, I, I'm somebody who read a lot of books, so I knew a lot of stuff and I didn't want to know it. I wanted to be in denial, total denial. Yeah. So what made you realise you needed help? Uh, I, well, I continued on with that sort of drinking. I was, for a while I worked in a bank, which was a really obscure thing to do because, I mean, I hate banks. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an accounty kind of person. Anyway, so I worked in this bank and, you know, we, we would drink at lunchtime because that's actually white collar work. Drinkers, you know, and I'm thinking, this is not good. But anyway, I'll say no. Um, and I, I was, as I said, I, I, I was aware. And then I left the bank and I decided I would study mm-hmm. and be a mature age student. And what was happening in those days was I would drink until it was time for my boyfriend to come home from work. And then I would go and sleep and try and pretend that I hadn't been drinking. Yeah. And I knew that this was not... This was not what normal people did. Yeah. Also made study very difficult. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So I ignored it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't give in without a fight. <laughs> and so then I went back to work and I was working in this totally, totally insane company. It was perfect for an alcoholic. Yeah. We were selling high-end furniture and my boss would come in and do lines of cocaine in the back room and have Chardonnay and I'm like, I am in employment heaven. (laughs) But I couldn't keep it up. I just collapsed and told my boss that I didn't like my job anymore very politely and left. And the world crumpled and six weeks later I was investigating AA because I just, I just, I imploded. Yeah. So you investigated AA. How did you find your way to to your first meeting? Right. I had friends in AA. Oh, okay. um, That I would never discuss my drinking with, but I knew about it. So I knew drinking. Um, And so my very first meeting, I looked it up and I wandered off to a meeting of the – it was held in the Salvation Army rooms in Burke Street in Melbourne. And I walked in there bawling my eyes out – um, feeling really horrible and sat there feeling totally superior to everybody in the room because, like, oh my God, you poor alcoholics, look at you all. <laughs> you know, they were all sober, I wasn't, but hey. Yeah. And I walked out and went, nope. And a few weeks later, or maybe a week or so later, I rang up again and yeah. a girl said that she would meet me. And I went to a meeting and it was above the city mission in St Kilda because I was living in St Kilda at the time in Melbourne. And this girl was on this real God high and God this and God that. And I'm like, hello, no. But I knew that there was nowhere else for me. Yeah. So I kept toddling along to meetings and then I actually rang AA and I said, look, the helpline, I said, look, you people seem to be the nicest people in the whole world, but um, I don't think your program is for me and who else could you recommend? Right. <laughs> and they just went, keep coming back, love. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, 
all right then. So I did. Right. Um, they actually recommended something that I really liked. They said, try lots of meetings. Don't not go to a meeting. Eventually you will find your people. Yeah. Um, because some of the meetings I was going to, you know, the problem was I was like, you know, I think it was what, 32 maybe. And I was going to meetings and there were blokes there. They had 40 years sobriety and they were wearing their pants up around their boobs and they were little yeah. old men. And I didn't know how to identify with that. Yeah. So I'm like, ah. Now, of course, I get it. But at the time, I couldn't identify. So they kept telling me to find things. And I remember going to this meeting and they had candles on the table and they had this green velvet, you know, tablecloth. And I'm like, oh, wow, you can be a hippie in AA. I'm so here. I'm so here. And so I just found found people that I could personally identify with. Yeah. So how do you think you've managed to stay sober? Right. The most important thing in my life is my recovery, right? I am not somebody who navel gazes and thinks about my recovery all the time. And when I was a drinker and a drug, I'm not that person. But AA comes before everything because if it doesn't, then I'm back drinking and everything I have in my life will go. You know, right now, my life is, there's parts of it I hate, you know, it's a life, but it's awesome. It is awesome. Now, if I don't put AA first and I don't practice those steps, I lose it. So that, how I have stayed sober, sometimes, sometimes I have been white knuckling it, but most of the time it is because I tootle off weekly twice a week to an AA meeting. Yeah. I do the steps. I do what's required to let me have the life I currently have. Yeah. I think it's very sound advice. Very sound advice. So how would you describe the life that you have today? How do you feel? This is funny because we often talk about this because, you know, like how do I tell a newcomer what I have? Because they don't know. They can only hear my words. But what I can say is I actually feel totally comfortable inside. Now, when I was drinking, I I used to have these corporate jobs and I had to wear a business suit and I had to put makeup on. But I would never look at me because I couldn't stand me. And today, gravity has made me unhappy. I don't like the ageing process. But I can look me in the eyes and I can like the person. And that's what AA has given me. In fact... You know, hey, yeah. I like me. I'm yeah. cool. So, yeah. And what about when you've got difficulties and things in your life? How do you cope with them? Look, I'm supposed to tell you I throw myself into service and I, I, I read the book and I do the lot. I swear a lot <laughs> and I just get on with life. Yeah. You know, um, I've never encountered I, – I have had hell in sobriety. Um. I was incredibly close to my older sister and she drank herself to death. Right. My mum died in sobriety and when my dad died when I was 10. Was your, sorry, was your dad an alcoholic? No. Oh, look, I don't know. Don't think so. Right. Oh, yes. Look, he probably was because the local pub was about to close down and so he and a group of his mates bought it. Now, I don't think social drinkers buy the pub, but dad's alcoholism was never something that impacted my life. Right, yeah. Um, 
So, you know, after Dad died, my mum and I were very, very close. So when I lost my mum, that was the the worst thing, you know, and I lost my sister and then a year later I lost my mum. Right. And that was just I had to dig deep to get through that. Yeah. And then, you know, that, that my husband Trev dropped a tree on his head. We didn't know whether he would survive and if he did survive whether he'd walk. He's pretty good because he's sitting out there now having a cup of tea. You wouldn't know. Um that wasn't the easiest time. And then, you know, we, we have lost a lot of other people that are important. And the hardest thing that I've done in AA is taking on my granddaughter yeah. because I'm not maternal. Um, and that has been difficult to raise a teenager. But this is life, you know. I didn't sign on for, you know, happy flowers. I signed on to have a complete life and complete lives involve bad times, they involve good times. And you just have to do what you need to do to get through. And for me, um, it's going to the meetings and going on holidays. That's what I used to do a lot. But it's going to meetings. Yeah. And how has your life changed since becoming sober? Like if we look at the outer stuff, like your living situation, your home, travel, that sort of thing. Right. When I was drinking... Um, I actually, during most of my drinking, I managed to keep the, the image up of being successful. Um, but I used to base my whole idea of success on the business suit and the business card. So I had that, but my, I was living in a flat rented and the day I stopped drinking was the day I couldn't afford anything. And I ended up sleeping on a mattress on the floor of my sister's house for those six weeks before I got into AA. And I had nothing. And I'm sitting there, you know, like this was the insane thought. It's like, I can't give up drinking because I'll never be able to go to Scotland and go on the whiskey trail again. And it was like, you're living on the floor on a mattress. (laughs) You've got no chance of getting to Scotland, sweet pea. So I was, I wasn't like, homeless on the streets but I was homeless I didn't have anything and you know I didn't own anything so moving to New Zealand was literally I packed a backpack and hopped on a plane there was nothing to bring I didn't own you know AA is not about getting the trappings it's not about that but we've got the trappings now you know we own a small farm we have you know rental accommodations we have a business I until COVID, used to go overseas every year because that's, that's actually how I cope with life. It's AA and, and, and nicking off overseas. Anyway, so, yeah, look, AA is, AA is not about getting the financial recovery. But, by God, once you get the sobriety, this financial recovery follows. What a nice way of explaining it. Yeah. Mm. So did your sobriety have anything to do with your move to New Zealand? Yeah, pretty much. I did a geographical. All right. All right, I got sober. And then I decided that I would move to New Zealand because that's, you know, the best way of dealing with life. I'm just going <laughs> to run away. Anyway, I made the mistake of running into the arms of a very old boyfriend who happened to be in AA. And so I thought, okay. And anyway, so I moved over here and lived very close to Hamner Springs. Right. So naturally enough, 
I was going to meetings in AA and then anybody I knew was in AA. So I couldn't, I mean, I did the geographical, but I didn't do a geographical away from AA. I actually threw myself totally into AA, not realising that that's what I was doing, but that's what I did. And so, you know, and the way I travelled this country when I first moved here was assemblies. I would go and it would be like, oh, cool, there's an assembly in Invercargill. I'll get to see what Invercargill's like. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of ran away to New Zealand and AA, really. Cool. And so how would you describe the relationships that you have today with your friends and families, family and loved ones and things like that? How have they changed since you've been sober? I actually have relationships with people. I used to use people in the past. Right. Now I have relationships. Um, I, my, my sister Katie, who is the world's most beautiful person, she's just gorgeous. And when I was drinking, I was a burden on her. Right. And she felt that she had to look after me. Now we're really close. And I know that when I ring up and I say, I'm coming home for a visit, she's, she's happy. Yeah. And just before COVID, I went on holidays with my brother, Peter, who I was incredibly close to when we were kids. But honestly, life, I've lived in New Zealand. He travels the world. We didn't see each other. So I hadn't really spent any time with him for, you know, nearly 30 years. And we wandered off to India together. And it was amazing because he respected me as an adult, and I was able to respect him as an adult as well. And it was, it, it was amazing to not feel a burden and be the baby and be useless. Yeah. Now, my relationships with people in New Zealand are very, very different from that because I've come over here and I became a stepmother to these hordes of children. And surprisingly here, they see me as an adult, Whereas my relationships with people in Australia saw me as, you know, a nong. Here I've always had to take on a very adult role. Yeah. So that really hasn't changed. They, But the kids here, I don't know about all of them, but most of them, they know that they can trust me. I am reliable. I am responsible. I am not fluffy. I am not, you know, like give them a hug and tell them life will be good. But if there's a problem, they know that, they can rely on me. Yeah. I will be there and I will help, I think. They may not. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> so AA has been described as a spiritual program. What does spirituality mean to you? <sighs> you gods and small fishes. Um, spirituality. Look, I was raised in a very Catholic household. So Catholicism was something I left and I was very worried when I joined AA that it would be religious. Yeah. Um, Now, it's not. What it is is I can understand when they say there is a God and it isn't me. Yeah. Right? And I can have a, a belief that there is some universal force of good and that's how I see AA, that, you know, spirituality is, I don't know, love? Really? Kind of? Maybe? Sort of? Hmm. And how do you think spirituality differs from religion? Right. Well, as I said, I was a Catholic. 
And uh, yes, we didn't have a lot of spirituality. Oh, actually, I shouldn't say that because I mean, like the the nuns and priests that I grew up with were really cool. And ninety percent of them. I'm also an Irish Catholic, so my mum immigrated to. Uh, Australia when she was 30, so I've got a lot of rallies still at home and half of them are nuns and priests, which is very weird. Anyway, so I shouldn't bag them. They are lovely, but it was something one had to do and it was inspired by fear and guilt. Right. Right. Spirituality is spirituality is something I have to do for my sobriety, but it's not inspired by fear and guilt. It's inspired by, you know, warmth and love. Nice. So what would you suggest for any listeners who are, who are out there and they think they might have a, um, a drinking problem? What advice would you give to them? Okay, go along to a meeting. Now, walking into a meeting will be weird. It will be very scary. And they will be full of these really odd people who are smiling and they go, hi, and welcoming. And that will be intimidating. But just understand that every single person who is in an AA meeting has had to walk in to their first meeting once and just go in and try and hear one thing that you go, I get it. Because the first meeting, nobody can hear anything because full of fear and terror and bewilderment and all the rest. So just try and hear one thing. And when people say, keep coming back, they actually mean it. Yeah. And lastly, what questions would you get someone to ask themselves to decide if they had a drinking problem? Are you uncomfortable by your drinking? Not whether other people have a problem with your drinking, but do you feel uncomfortable? And I also often say to people, you don't have to be a gutter drunk. Yeah. And you don't have to be a blackout drunk who drinks every single day because that's the hardest bit as a binge drinker to understand it. So it's just, do you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Meg, thanks so much for coming on the show today and for sharing your story with us. Cool. For our listeners, if you're related to anything you've heard or would like some more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up at the web on www.aa.org.nz or you can call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear more from AA members sharing their experiences. Our show is every Monday at 5.30 on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on Plains FM at plainsfm.org.nz. We can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. If you want to stop, we can help and you don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with a serenity prayer as we do in every AA meeting. God, God, grant grant me the serenity serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change, courage to change the things I can, and and wisdom to know the difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9. 